0: Elise well, and I have been talking about really over the last uh, several days, you know, we're somewhat surprised at how well the equity markets are kind of discounting, if you will, the coronavirus and the economic income, uh, economic impact that may have uh, going forward. To help us kind of put into perspective kind of what's going on out there in the world, we welcome, as always, our good friend Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business uh, on Bloomberg Radio. Also the founder and chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management joining us here on our Bloomberg interactive broker studio so barry one of the things that you know people have been we're 10 or 11 years into this economic cycle and people are thinking about what's going to cause or push us into the next recession what are your thoughts on that as we think about the coronavirus and all the other crazy things going on out in the world so the
2: the two big things i keep hearing from uh pundits and investors and and economists one is a geopolitical event and certainly the coronavirus qualifies as that and the other is this, you know, look at Tesla, this this crazy tech boom and bubble is going to lead us to a recession. And, and I don't think either of those are genuine recessionary factors. So let's start with the coronavirus, which I know you guys can't get enough of. You've been talking about it for solidly for a week. Look, this is going to hurt. I think hurt. I'm coming
1: down with the case.
2: Right. Well, you want the B version. The A version is the is the problematic look one. Look at that. Um, you
1: think we're obsessed? You you actually so are like here. I just made that up, Just so you know, Carry I have on. no idea All
2: what right. about. But um, markets. So when you look at the impact of this, it's going to affect uh, imports and exports out of China. Uh, it'll affect Australia and Korea and Vietnam. There'll be some knock-on effect in the United States, but this isn't the sort of thing. Without it spiraling wildly out of control, this isn't the sort of thing that leads to a recession. So we have less than a thousand deaths, right, which are tragic, and we have uh, about 10,000 cases, and I think the death rate is somewhere around 2%, which is high. But last year in the United States, there were 10,000 influenza deaths. The flu kills 10,000 people a year out of admittedly much higher infection rates. It's a, it's about a 10th or a 15th of right, a percent. Barry, so this doesn't cause okay. a global recession.
1: But this is basically uh, what's being priced into the market today, that people are saying, we hear you, valuations in the tech companies, high, and yet this is the future, so well, why not? And that seems to be justified to some degree by some of the results. It's, much, it's then, more
2: than that, I'm oh, gonna jump okay. in right here. All right, carry it's on. It's much more than that, because if you look at the trailing five-year returns, The S&P 500 is up 65% over the past five years. The tech sector, a lot more growth, a lot more potential. It's up 125%, which sounds like a lot. Look at the exact same five-year period, only instead of going back from uh, February 2020, look at it from February 2000. The previous five years, the NASDAQ gained 865% seven times the past five years' growth of the NASDAQ now. And let me also point out that tech stocks are making boodles and boodles of money. They're enormously profitable. Uh, Look at at Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Go down the list of the amount of cash on the balance sheet. This is not the dot-com era. This isn't even remotely close. These are large,
0: profitable companies, some of which are monopolies, Google, Facebook, arguably monopolies. Well, it's interesting, I just pointed out uh, something that Danielle DiMartino Booth um, um, just retweeted. She appears on our show often, basically just kind of referencing what's going on in the repo market and the fact that the Fed's injecting money into the short end of the market. And she says, that is what's driving the markets. Everybody is entitled
2: to be as wrong as they want. (laughs) And I have been arguing with Daniel DiMartino about this for a solid decade. Let's assume she's right. Okay, so the Fed is doing this. Now you know the Fed is driving the market higher Then you must really like stocks because there is no sign the Fed's going to stop doing this. I don't believe the repo market directly lands in equity valuation.
1: So put put the repo market aside, because a lot of people say that that's just completely a structural issue. It's not necessarily pumping liquidity into markets. Uh, There have been a lot of arguments, Bill Dudley in particular, uh, making it um, in a Bloomberg Opinion column recently in former New York Fed president. But just on a larger point here, this concept of Fed stimulus, I think it's poignant at a time when Christine Lagarde came out overnight, the ECB president, and said, we don't have that much more leverage to lower rates to stimulate the economy. Hey, lawmakers, it's your turn. And that's what she was saying. And you're hearing this increasingly, this feeling that, yeah, they're in there supporting the market, but they're running out of ammunition. That doesn't concern you, the fact that they're running out of ammunition and they haven't gotten inflation uh, up further and you're seeing CapEx uh, go down. I mean, there are a whole host of things you can point to to be
2: bearish. So I have a post up on the blog a couple of years ago with a quote, the Fed is running out of ammunition, central bankers are running out of ammunition. This is a slide in a presentation I do. Every year for the past 12 years, someone has come out and said the Fed is running out of ammunition. And as far as I can tell, they have an infinite amount of ammunition because- uh, they issue credit and they affect rates. P.S., nobody is making buy or sell decisions these days about CapEx, about homes, about any uh, large purchase um, because of where rates are. If rates go up a percent, they're still historically cheap. So that that's not the issue. When we say the Fed is running out of ammo, the question is, How low are they going to keep rates and for how long, and how much is that affecting other people's um, purchase decisions, consumer demand, etc.? I I, I don't like the entire Fed argument, the central bank argument. It's clear the economy is still in a post credit crisis state and it is not the most robust, contrary to what you may have heard at the State of the Union address the global economy and the U.S. economy have been highly dependent on monetary policy. I'll give that much to Danielle. She's right about that. And where Christine Lagarde is half right is that we understand the Keynesian playbook. In a crisis, when when demand from consumers and demand from uh, the business sector drops, the government should step in with fiscal stimulus. The fact that we've gone so long relying mostly on monetary policy is a giant policy mistake. It should have been fiscal stimulus from day one with monetary stimulus right behind it. Christine Lagarde is absolutely right, albeit a decade late. And it is, remember the Austerians in the UK and yeah. Europe? They took a bad situation and said, how can we make this much, much worse? I know, let's cut back spending right into the teeth of uh. a drop of demand. And they very successfully, made the circumstances in Europe much worse. Yeah. There is a reason why the US recovery preceded that in Japan and that in Europe. We recognize this immediately for what it was. We had Bernanke doing monetary stimulus, and we still did a modest seven or $800 billion stimulus. It should have been three or four trillion, but let's hold that aside.
1: Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, founder of uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management, and incredible uh, orator on the woes and the lack of fiscal stimulus. I will say, I love them sitting around thinking, how can we make this much, (laughs) much worse? Here we go. We're going to be hearing from President Trump after he was acquitted of the impeachment charges brought to him by the House of Representatives. Senators, particularly the Republicans, really joined forces and voted to acquit him. Joining us now to discuss Ramesh Panuro, senior editor for The National Review, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist coming to us from Washington, D.C. I just want to start, Ramesh, uh, your opinion of the stance that Republicans took. Do you think that they did the right thing in acquitting President Trump?
3: I think that Senator Romney had the better of the argument among Republicans. I think that President Trump abused his power, and even some of the Republicans who voted to acquit him agreed with that. Uh, And uh, the impeachment power was put into the Constitution by the founders precisely to deal with presidential abuses of power of this nature. So I think he should have been convicted.
1: Ramesh, uh, the National Review is thought of as a right-leaning, a conservative-leaning, typically Republican publication. How much pushback do you get when you say things like this, given the fact that President Trump has a near record amount of support among Republicans?
3: Well, the official editorial position of the magazine is on the other side for me. Most of my colleagues are on the other side. So I do get a lot of uh, pushback, disagreement, um, sometimes very politely and thoughtfully expressed uh, from our readers, sometimes less so.
0: So, Ramesh, let's look forward a little bit. What do you think the acquittal or, or the in the Senate means for President Trump and the Democrats how do you think that's going to kind of play out for the election
3: I suspect that it will not be a top of mind issue by the time of the election. Um, I just think that we have a lot of time between now and November and media cycles and news cycles are just a lot faster than they used to be. So I think we'll all probably be obsessing about something else in the last weeks of October and the beginning of November.
1: Do you think that going forward uh, that this will actually solidify President Trump's base behind him? Or do you think that this will just sort of uh, be a side note as we uh, proceed toward November?
3: President Trump has been extremely careful to keep his base together. He has done a lot of things that previous Republican presidents would not have done. But on the core issues that matter to Republican voters, like guns and taxes and abortion. He's been a completely orthodox Republican. And so he had a unified base even before impeachment. Impeachment may have slightly solidified that base, uh, but the the partisan dynamic of a presidential election was likely to generate that result anyway.
0: Ramesh, what do you make of uh, Senator Mitt Romney's uh, decision to vote to convict
3: Well, I think that it surprised a lot of people who had just resigned themselves to this being uh, an almost completely perfectly uh, party line vote. Um, I think um, Senator Romney made a good case for his decision. Uh, It's not, uh, you know, obviously doesn't change the outcome, um, but it just sort of puts him on record about um, what uh, the appropriate norms for presidential conduct ought to be.
1: Ramesh, considering your stance that you thought that President Trump should have been convicted, do you think that he should lose or are you voting for someone else in November?
3: Well, I don't even know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. Um, I certainly uh, think it's unlikely um, that I am going to vote for President Trump. I didn't vote for him last time, uh, and I continue to have uh, um, serious objections to uh, the way he has conducted himself in office.
0: Do you think there are any Democrats as we as currently, currently constituted in the field that can be President Trump?
3: You know, um, right now, I'd say that President Trump uh, is probably favored to win, but I wouldn't say that uh, he's inevitably going to win. And I think a number of the Democratic candidates could potentially defeat him. Um, Some are, I think, riskier than others. I think Senator Sanders um, would be a risky nominee for the Democratic Party, given the historic and continuing unpopularity of socialism in the United States.
0: Ramesh Panuro, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts. Ramesh Panuro is a senior editor uh, for the National Review, also a Bloomberg Opinion uh, columnist uh, as well. And you can read the work from Ramesh and the other Bloomberg Opinion columnists at Bloomberg.com opinion and on the terminal go.
1: tech shares absolutely surging after better-than-expected earnings from a lot of the giants, plus uh, looking at the trajectory forward that they are the future. Big question, could the coronavirus and the spread there disrupt supply chains enough to make a material dent for these companies? And just how much good news has already been priced in without perhaps that good news actually happening? Brad Stone joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios. We're so glad to have you here in New York. Normally, it's in San Francisco. Senior executive editor of global tech for bloom bloomberg news brad let's just start with what we've seen in terms of the supply chain challenges uh, stemming from the coronavirus for big tech, we've heard from Apple. What else are we hearing with with chips, with other areas? Yeah,
4: thanks, Lisa. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of concern uh, and 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 doubt. Um, I mean, just like the World Health Organization, you know, is saying it doesn't quite know, you know, how this virus operates, um, how how it started, whether we're at peak infection. You know, the tech companies don't know what's coming, and so we've seen a lot of of the of the big suppliers kind of warn. Uh, not much concrete. Evidence yet, so so Foxconn, right, the, the maker of the iPhone, uh, saying it expects one to three percent growth instead of three to five. You know, Qualcomm warning that it could be material. Materially impacted, we've seen LG Electronics withdraw from the big uh, Mobile World Congress trade show in Barcelona. Um, you know, so if you're a tech company with c- exposure, uh, if your supply chain is in China, you know you're watching it, and it's sort of up in the air what what the impact's going to be and whether it'll impact global demand.
0: So, Brad, uh, you and your the technology team out on the West Coast to cover this so so well, uh, thinking about all that supply chain of, of global technology. First, we had the trade uncertainty, which I guess still is there between the U.S. and China despite the phase one deal. Now we've got this virus. A lot of times companies have been talking about trying to de-emphasize or take some of their supply chain out of China, maybe move it to Vietnam or other areas in Asia. Is there any evidence that that they're going to follow through with that, or that they can actually do that to move the needle.
4: I mean, I think they will follow through, but
0: that's such a
4: long-term process, yeah. right? And you've got, you know, you've got 30 years of the supply chain consolidating in China, in particular in areas of China like Shenzhen, and and you're, it's not going to it's not going to happen anytime soon. And some of the, you know, the politically motivated promises like Foxconn saying it's going to build a facility in Wisconsin, <laughs> uh, you know, that's been a little more hype than reality. So none of these companies can adjust fast enough to with what's happening now in China.
1: So you talked about some of the supply chain challenges, and yet we're looking at the NASDAQ up 6.6%. Uh, we're looking at a FANG plus index having its biggest run and the most valuation relative to the uh, s and I think, in history. I mean, we're looking at some pretty extreme valuations. When you talk to people, is there a sense that there's too much good news baked in?
4: No, I think, I think it's really driven by the kind of consolidation uh, of, of tech into you know into a few companies. And like you have the virus and you have the regulatory overhang and yet, right, Apple, blockbuster iPhone sales, you know, the stock near an all-time high. You know, Amazon, the reacceleration of the cloud business, despite all the fear and uncertainty around, like, Microsoft, you know, winning the Jedi contract and whether Amazon's cloud growth was slowing down, and a reacceleration in retail, right? Pe- more people becoming Prime members. And so, yeah, you're right. It seems oversold. I mean, and, of course, you have examples where that is overbought. true, like Tesla, right? right. Over Overbought. Um, and yet, you know, when you look at the performance of these companies, despite the sort of bad news and the regulatory concerns—they're still doing really well.
1: All right. So, can that enthusiasm translate and spill back over to the uh, unicorn world, which had some of its shine taken off at the end of last year after a couple of less than happy uh, IPO situations?
4: That's right. No, and then and then we're sort of into a different discussion, right? Because you know, when you when you look at the companies that went public last year, Uber and, and Peloton, and then of course WeWork, which didn't even make it out, you had a situation where the hype did collide with reality, and a lot of the value was taken out already by uh, private equity, by SoftBank, by the venture capital firm. So, you know, there you have a situation where you've got companies like Airbnb or, or, or the fintech company Robinhood, which are probably looking at this market with a lot of anxiety, wondering, mm-hmm. hey, and Casper, the mattress company, of course, today, you know, how are the public markets going to react, particularly if they, if
0: they remain unprofitable? So one of the issues that has kind of crept into the technology discussion over the last year or two uh, has been regulatory overhang. Now, historically, the US government's taken, I think, a pretty light touch to the uh, U.S. tech industry, but that might be changing. How, what's the feeling in the Valley? There is this a paradigm shift, and they got to really start thinking yeah, about this. I think that's right, Paul. I mean, storm clouds, right? It's coming at them from all
4: angles. You've, you've got the EU, which is obviously the, the most active over the last few years, um, but then in the U.S., it, the Justice Department seeming to increase the pace of its investigation, particularly of Google, um, but then and particularly with regards to its third-party ad network. You know, we've reported in the Wall Street Journal. Has reported that they're interviewing publishers, looking at Google's ad dominance. Then you've got the FTC, you've got attorneys general, um, you've got the David uh, uh, Siccellini, the house member from Rhode Island, You know, leading these uh, discussion panel discussions, looking at uh, big tech, and so yeah, I think we're sort of at peak, uh, or we're close to peak, um, you know, scrutiny of the big tech companies, and that's not that's we're just getting started there, and that does seem to be the one thing that all the presidential candidates kind of agree on.
1: Right now, markets basically saying it doesn't look like those politicians are going to move soon on anything, and it seems like tech companies believe that as well. Is there a sign, any sign whatsoever, that they're wrong, that there is some kind of push to get some regulation? passed in the near term?
4: I think you're, I, I don't think they're wrong. I think this is a long-term process, you know, and, and we saw it with the Microsoft case in the 90s. It takes years, it's appealed. The Supreme Court often has to get into these things. But, you know, when we saw uh Makan Del Rahim, the head of the DOJ yep. antitrust division, recuse himself from the Google investigation There are signs that things are accelerating, you know, and he was involved in the sale of DoubleClick to Google, so it's one reason why you'd want to step back. But things like that, you know, suggest that we're, we're no longer in the realm of the hypothetical. It might take a long time, but these companies are girding for battle.
0: Brad Stone, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming into our Bloomberg uh, 1130 studios, usually based in San Francisco. Brad, senior executive editor of Global Technology for Bloomberg News. He and his team do a great job covering everything on the tech space. They've been very busy with all these uh, IPOs and all these big issues affecting big tech.
1: The Treasury Department gave details about their issuance of 20-year treasuries for the first time as they laid out a plan to finance a deficit for the federal government that should reach $1 trillion annually over the next 10 years, is according to independent analyses. The question is, does it matter? And this has been a subject of huge debate. Joining us now to weigh in, Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and editor of DownsizingGovernment.org. Chris, you have come out uh, with some pretty stark warnings about the federal deficit. Can we just start about why a federal deficit is so problematic. A lot of people challenging that concept in an era where there is an encouragement for more fiscal stimulus.
5: Well, what the federal government is doing right now is completely unique in uh, in our two series of history. In the past, we've had spikes in federal government debt, usually during wars. You know, the Civil War and World War One and World War Two. But the government has always paid the debt back down again. Now we are not at war. We're in the eleventh year of economic expansion. Now we should be paying down our debt, but our debt is the highest in our peacetime history, and it is going up. The latest Congressional Budget Office data shows that the uh, annual deficit is going from a trillion this year to 1.7 trillion 10 years from now. And I think that's optimistic. For one thing, the CBO doesn't put any recessions in its uh, projections. And yet we probably will have a recession in coming years sometime, and that'll blow an even bigger hole. So I think the outlook is very scary. Chris, are you
0: surprised that the Republican Party hasn't made this bigger of an issue and and really tried to work harder to uh, shrink the size of government to deal with this deficit?
5: It is remarkable. There's been huge responsibility on both sides. You know, the Republicans, they just want to cut taxes, which increases deficits. The the Democrats and the Republicans want to increase spending. So we've got this situation where there's irresponsibility on all sides. What's remarkable is if you go back and you look at the, the, the federal budget documents of, say, President Reagan or President Clinton, they were, there was a lot of concern about deficits. There was a focus on you know, creating new mechanisms uh, to try to reduce debt and deficits. That has all gone out the window, and I think what has happened is pretty clear that we have global capital markets these days, and the U.S. government is able to borrow at very low interest rates. And politicians don't have any fears about the debt. It used to be the politicians thought if they ran big deficits, it would push up mortgage interest rates, it would cause inflation, and it would create political pain for them. But I think all the political pain is gone, and so they're just they, their natural spending uh, instincts have come out, and they're irresponsible.
1: Chris, but to that exact point, they have uh, blown up the deficit, and it hasn't mattered. In fact, we just got a to read today uh, that mortgage rates in the United States have fallen to their lowest since 2016 so why is it a problem to have a big deficit
5: uh, the the first problem is that uh, all this uh, ex- all this borrowing is cost pushed to the future the, the pain doesn't come now the government borrows another 1 billion or 10 billion or 100 billion that is all a cost on the next generation of young taxpayers taxes will have to be higher 20 trillion in the future because we've got this giant 20 trillion dollar debt now. So it means that, and as you know, just somewhat uh, a bit less than half of all our debt is borrowed from abroad. So that means that young American workers in, in coming decades will be working. Their taxes will be going to Washington siphoned off from them and paid the foreign creditors. So they're going to be working and we're not even going to get the benefit of that work here in the U.S. economy. So that's where the rubber hits the road. The cost is on the future.
0: So Chris, in hindsight, a little bit of hindsight here with the 2017 tax cuts, a mistake from an economic perspective?
5: I think that the corporate tax cut was absolutely needed. We have to be globally competitive on our corporate tax rate the individual tax cuts, I think, were much more of a mixed bag. As you know, the individual tax cuts expire at the end of 2025. And I think there's going to be and there should be a good debate at that time whether they're worth extending, because if Congress keeps spending like uh, money like this, Those individual tax cuts, in a way, they're not really tax cuts. All they're doing is deferring a giant tax burden that's going to come in the future anyway.
1: Chris, there's also, though, uh, an argument here that if there is some sort of fiscal stimulus ongoing, that it will continue to grow the economy enough to finance some of the tax bills that will come due later on, that the consequences of not taking action now could potentially be more detrimental to the US economy than ballooning the deficit. What do you say to those arguments?
5: Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Look, in the, in the 1990s under uh, President Clinton, we had some of the strongest growth we've had over the last half century, and we balanced the budget. Clinton balanced the budget four years uh, in a row, and we had strong economic growth. The idea that we're getting stimulus from the massive deficits now doesn't make any sense. I think what it does is it scares investors and scares businesses uh, about the future creditworthiness of the U.S. economy. So I don't and, and look, we've only got modest um, economic growth right now despite this giant so-called stimulus. So I, I don't buy the stimulus uh, argument.
0: Chris Edwards, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts here. Chris Edwards, director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute, also an editor of DownsizingGovernment.org, based in Washington, D.C., raising the the specter of how this could potentially the the federal deficit could end badly uh, for uh, the U.S. government and its uh, populace.
1: Look, whichever way you you believe, it's a really interesting debate to be having because for a long time, to Chris's point, people did believe if you balloon the def- deficit, you'd end up up with much higher rates, which would lead to uh, some sort of economic slowdown in their own right. But the problem is we have seen exactly the opposite, that major developed nations have gone out there and they have ballooned their deficits and their rates have dropped. So yep. kind of re- calling into question some of the old theory here yep. at raising questions about helicopter money, etc. It's an interesting debate, one that will be definitely had uh, increasingly fervently.
0: Yes, exactly.